Support comes from Bellingham's Whatcom Museum with its historic Hall of Birds on May 31st and June 1st hosting bird taxidermist and museum preservationist Alice Markham for a weekend of events and workshops. Details and tickets at whatcommuseum.org. You're listening to Soundside. I'm Libby Denkman. I flew yesterday on a plane, on a Boeing 737 MAX 9 plane to be precise. And I typically have zero flying anxiety, but this time I took special notice of the brochure explaining the plane's safety procedures. I leaned in for the flight attendant's instructions, and I had my head on a swivel to identify the door plugs near the back of the plane where an exit row would be on some models. My seatmates joked about doing the same thing. We were all a little unsettled. We were contemplating the same model plane where a door plug blew off an Alaska Airlines jet on January 5th. For many, this was unimaginable that within six years of two deadly crashes of its 737 MAX 8 jets, Boeing would find itself in yet another very visible crisis. But for some, this is not actually that surprising. That's because some of the lessons that should have been learned in the wake of these tragedies appear to have gone unheeded. Peter Robison knows a lot about the decision-making that's led Boeing to where it is today. He's the author of Flying Blind, the 737 MAX tragedy and the fall of Boeing. And Peter's also an investigative journalist for Bloomberg, and he joins me in the studio today. Peter, thank you so much for stopping in. Thanks for having me. Last week, we got a look at the NTSB's initial findings on the January 5th blowout. And this confirmed earlier reporting that relied on a whistleblower's tip. Four bolts that were supposed to be secured to the door plug on Flight 1282, those were missing when the plane left the Renton Boeing plant. What stands out to you about the investigation so far? Well, one one thing that stands out is simply how how quickly this this was solved. There was actually uh, some speculation on Twitter uh, soon after the accident that those bolts had not been installed because people looked closely at the pictures that the passengers had taken on the plane, and uh, there weren't the typical marking marks that you would expect to see if the bolts had been installed. Uh, so, uh, and it also confirms what Dave Calhoun said uh, soon after the accident, which was that it was our mistake. So. What it shows is that Boeing still has a long way to go in, in getting its production system under control. Mm. I was on vacation last week, and because I'm a chill person who knows how to relax, I started reading your book, Flying Blind, about the Max 8 tragedies in 2018 and 2019. And as somebody who's talked to all sorts of Boeing folks, you've dug deep into the history of this company and its culture. Uh, what was your initial reaction when you saw the blowout um, of the Alaska Airlines flight on January 5th? How did you initially uh, react and what were you thinking about? I actually thought of McDonnell Douglas because as part of the book, uh, I had researched the history of McDonnell Douglas, which famously uh, had a, a, a penny-pinching, cost-cutting culture, uh, which was a result of the fact that the military side was really in charge and managers who didn't understand the risks and the investments that you needed to make in the uh, commercial side were were in charge. And so McDonnell Douglas, way back in 1974, had a a terrible crash of one of its uh, planes, a DC-10 near Paris. 346 people died. That's eerily the the same number of people who died in the two Boeing crashes. Mm -hmm. Uh, so that that really harmed McDonnell Douglas's reputation, and uh, but but it, uh, it it struggled along. And then five years later, there was another crash of a DC-10 
uh, near Chicago. And, and that crash really cemented the DC-10's reputation in the minds of the public. And the and the plane's reputation never recovered. And uh, that's the first thing I thought of after this crash. This is this is a, a, a third incident that may be cementing the reputation of this plane in people's minds. The Boeing 737. The, exactly. The 737 MAX. Yeah. Talk to me about the difference between the businesses, because Boeing does both military and commercial uh, jets. But there's a huge difference in risk, right, when you talk about those two models. And I think McDonnell Douglas, as you said, had a risk adverse attitude because they were so used to the military business, which had a guaranteed income stream, right? Exactly. Uh, military contracts can be cost plus. So you're, you're getting the cost of your contract plus your margin. It's more predictable. You don't have the same uh, tolerance for error. I've, I've talked to uh, Boeing executives who worked in the military side a long time, and they uh, are very, uh, uh, they, they, they really approach the commercial side with uh, almost fear that just that the, the tolerance for error is so small with commercial. You have to design these aircraft to have uh, almost, to have no uh, accidents over time, and that's very difficult to do. Yeah. And the way the money comes in, I mean, the military contracts, you know, while you're developing, you're getting uh, that cash flow, right? And with the commercial jets, it's like you have all the development, all the testing, everything, and the profits come in slowly at first. Exactly. You, you, uh, you, and, and this has been true for, for Boeing's entire history. The 747 nearly bankrupted Boeing, and it was because Boeing had to invest, had, had to make the gamble that this was the plane that customers wanted, and it, and it, it really made a huge gamble. And, and that is the case for every all-new commercial jet. You launch with a handful of customers, and you just have to trust that you've made the right call. Yeah. I was really struck by your account in the book of the 2018 and 2019 tragedies, the first crash of Lion Air that took the lives of 189 people. Um, It was initially, after that crash, met with a response from Boeing, which seemed pretty shocking. I mean, there was kind of a dismissiveness, maybe uh, I'm going to editorialize here, but an arrogance, even uh, uh, racism on the count of how some people were talking about the pilots in that crash. Um, the company didn't seem to take the problems with the MCAS software seriously until after the second crash in 2019 that killed 157 people. Um, since then at Boeing, new CEO, new safety procedures, pledges to refocus on safety. Can you compare how Boeing and Dave Calhoun are responding to this crisis Compared to how the company responded in 2018, you're absolutely right. the The Boeing response in in 2018 and 2019 was arrogant. It it, it was uh, it, 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 Dennis Mullenberg, the CEO, then uh, blamed uh, the pilots. Uh, the company put out a statement questioning the maintenance of the plane uh, privately. It was acknowledging within its own walls that it did need to redesign the MCAS system, but publicly it was blaming its own customer. Uh, in this case, uh, Dave Calhoun, perhaps cognizant of the fact that that response ultimately cost Dennis Mullenberg his job, immediately came out and, and accepted blame and appeared in the factory and said, this is our mistake. And uh, that message to employees was also quickly broadcast on Boeing's own website. So that was a message that Boeing was trying to send to the world that it, that it is being more humble at this time. Mm. 
Do you think there was something to to the fact that it was Alaska Airlines and not um, an international carrier that they felt more of a pressure to respond forcefully and take responsibility than they did in 2018 and 2019 with pilots. I mean, there was conversations about whether, you know, people were properly trained on these other international carriers. That, that is true. There, there was a real knee-jerk uh, blaming of, of Lion Air that took place after the first crash, and even of Ethiopian. There, there, was, uh, there were questions raised in Congress about whether the pilots in, uh, of the Ethiopian uh, plane had responded appropriately. Um, in this case, it's impossible to ignore when you have an accident that takes place in real time in the United States and you have a gaping hole in the side of a plane. That's not something anyone ever expects to see. And, and it has been um, interesting to see the response of the public that although no one died in this case, th- this accident does seem to have generated more public discussion definitely than that first crash. I'm talking with Bloomberg's Peter Robison. He's the author of Flying Blind, the 737 MAX Tragedy, and the Fall of Boeing. We'll have more after a quick break. You're listening to Soundside on KUOW. This is Soundside. I'm Libby Dankman. And Bloomberg investigative reporter Peter Robison is with me. He's giving us more insight into the safety crisis at Boeing and how the history of the company can explain what's going on today. His book is Flying Blind, the 737 MAX Tragedy and the Fall of Boeing. And Peter, you lay in your book a lot of the blame for the MAX 8 defects and safety lapses on this cultural shift at Boeing after the 1997 McDonnell Douglas acquisition. And I have a feeling listeners have started to hear this in the coverage of the MAX 9 blowout. There's a sense that Boeing's commitment to engineering was eclipsed by a focus on free cash flow, on shareholder value. There was this GE Jack Welch acolyte executive class that was running the show, and it left behind the history of engineering excellence that had made the company great. Um, But that's modern capitalism, right? I mean, in order to compete in today's marketplace, you have to have a, a focus on shareholder value in a lot of ways. Like, that's how these companies survive. And I'm curious if you can kind of describe a specific instance or some specific examples of the way that this culture of shareholder value over engineering actually played out in the company over the years. Like, why is that ethos important to quality control at Boeing? Those are all really good points. But but Boeing has always had shareholders. And even back in the days of the 747, it had to balance the concerns of the finance department. It had to balance what engineers wanted. Uh, Joe, Joe Sutter, the legendary designer of the 747, uh, famously stood up. Uh, he, he was under pressure uh, because the 747 was running so far above budget. He was under pressure to cut costs. And he, uh, at a meeting, uh, didn't do that. He said, I actually need several hundred more engineers. Yeah, I'm not going to cut engineers. I need more engineers. <laughs> right, yeah. Right. And the CEO kind of walked out. Yeah, the CEO walked out and, and, his, and he thought he was going to be fired the next day. Yeah. But then he heard through other executives that the T. Wilson, the CEO at the time, said Sutter's doing a great job. So the the CEO was recognizing that yes, you know, they did need to get costs under control. They needed to think about it, but they also had to think about how to complete this job, how to invest for the future. Yeah, I think there were moments too in the history of the company where 
you know, the finance people would be like, hey, are you paying attention to the bottom line here? And it, it sort of felt like there was a lot of hand waving on the behalf of the engineers. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, that money thing actually matters. Um, and so the the change came at Boeing hard and swift. And, um, you know, ultimately, there's a lot of questions today about what that means. Um I think the anecdotes that you provide about how test pilots could just, you know, raise these concerns in the process of developing certain planes and Boeing would stop down and completely redesign a part of the jet. And that would take tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars in today's money. Um, But they would do it because they heard the experts and they had a commitment to safety. And I mean, could that happen today? Boeing would certainly argue that it that it can. Uh, I, I think the uh, the I think the example that you're um, talking about there is is a uh, during the development of the 707, uh, uh, Tex Johnston, the famous test pilot who did a barrel roll of the 707 over uh, the hydroplane races on Lake Washington. Quite a character. Yes, uh, he uh, uh, d- during development they actually had. Uh, crashes. And, and after one, he realized that the tail needed to be redesigned. And so he went into a meeting with engineers. He remembers it. He describes it in his book as being very icy. These these uh, others at Boeing did not want to spend the money and design this plane, but he was insistent that it would ultimately make the plane safer. So that's what Boeing did. I, I did describe in my, in my book uh, during the development of the MAX, it did not have that feel. There were moments when people said, hey, I think we need to have a synthetic airspeed indicator, uh, which is something that might have prevented these crashes entirely. And uh, those engineers were overruled. So y- y- you were hearing by the time the MAX was developed a-, a different mentality at Boeing. You had to kind of buy your way onto the plane, right? Was that the way that they thought about it? Like the extra safety measures had to be cost conscious. Yes, that was the phrase that any change the, the the max uh there there was such a desire to keep costs down during the development of the max that that was the phrase engineers heard that executives would tell them uh, any change has to buy its way onto the airplane. Mm. I'm talking with Peter Robison, an investigative reporter for Bloomberg and the author of Flying Blind: The 737 Max Tragedy and the Fall of Boeing. We're talking of course about the uh three crises in Boeing uh, over the last six years, including the two tragic crashes in 2018 and 2019 of the MAX 8. And then, of course, the blowout January 5th of um, a door panel on the MAX 9 plane. And what Boeing's culture, its history, um, you know, how those things have played into what's happening at Boeing today. I think the development of the 737 is interesting because it was always sort of in the initial stages kind of a throwaway plane. It was supposed to be for these shorter hops. And people thought of it as, you know, maybe uh, something that Boeing was required to make rather than what it was really (laughs) invested in making. But it ended up being this hugely, you know, most popular uh, jet, you know, in Boeing's history. Is there something in the seed of how the 737 was initially developed that today handicaps how it's able to provide like the top quality, top safety, top everything that a modern jet, you know, needs to provide. Well, it was uh, introduced in 1967, so it uh, still has uh, mechanical 
uh, pulleys and gears uh, connected to the flight surfaces. The Airbus uh, A320 developed in the 1980s is a fly-by-wire system with electronics, so it's able to more fully integrate uh, redundant sensors and monitoring of aircraft systems. When you say it's like more of a physical pulley system, what do you mean by that? It's it's con- the the flight control surfaces are connected by uh, m- mechanical uh, pulleys and gears. Uh, if if you look inside, you can go to the Museum of Flight and look inside a seven forty seven, and you can see uh, the the actual uh, um, the actual linkages to the flight control systems. Uh, and in the two Lion Air in the Lion Air crash and the Ethiopian Air crash, when the primary uh, trim system went out, the pilots had to move a manual trim wheel physically uh, in order to keep the plane in, in trim. Uh, and uh, th- this that's all just emphasizing the fact that this is a plane that has been in service for, for 50 years. And Boeing envisions keeping the MAX in service for 75, 100. So since the MAX 8 tragedies, which you describe in your book, What has Boeing done to refocus on safety? What are the big changes besides leadership, obviously new CEO, that happened to that company? Well, so Boeing uh, had made some positive moves on safety uh, after the Ethiopian crash. Uh, Boeing actually created a safety committee of its board, which it uh, almost shockingly didn't have uh, before those accidents. Uh, Boeing has mentioned safety front and center much more frequently at a uh, conference last week of the Pacific Northwest Aerospace Alliance, uh, the Boeing execs who managed the supply chain said, take as long as you need, uh, go slow. This was uh, very surprising to the suppliers who were there because they were hearing the opposite message for the last eight to 10 years, and it was uh, speed up, speed up, speed up. And I, what you saw in the door blowout uh, is potentially uh, a lack of experience after the pandemic. There, there was uh, a lot of workforce turnover. The workforce had um, been, uh, you know, a lot of experienced people had left at that time. There was potentially a loss of tribal knowledge. We don't know who actually was involved in in that yet. Um, but the other thing was was really the um, the changes to the production system that Boeing had made. It, I think it's well known. This has been talked about a lot that. The Spirit Aerosystems, which makes the fuselage, used to be part of Boeing. It was Boeing Wichita until 2005, and that was sold to a private equity firm in a cost-cutting move. And that and that's led to uh, just much more difficult coordination. Coordination is more difficult uh, for for Boeing when it's dealing with another company. Uh, and after that, after that uh, unit was was sold, uh, I you heard I heard from several Boeing execs who said that was a big mistake and Boeing should buy it back. And so, in other words, the fuselage being manufactured by Spirit Aerosystems now, not Boeing Wichita, but a contractor, it gets delivered to Renton. And then there is this handoff between Spirit workers and Boeing workers. And again, we don't have the information. The NTSB says we don't know who actually took the door off and replaced it. But is there a feeling that that chain of custody separation um is a problem here, that the quality control is just not as smooth as it would be if this was all one company. Exactly. I've, I've talked to people who uh, 
have, have worked in these situations and they say that before, when we were part of Boeing, it was just a phone call. Just, just call, you know, you're missing a part, just call someone at Boeing. We're in the same company. We'll figure it out. Now it's, I've got to go to my manager. The manager has to go to a manager at Boeing. That manager has to go to the person who is supposed to provide the part. Then that gets written up. It, it just becomes much more uh, complicated and, and complex and, uh, instead of just being in-house. Yeah. So there's a lot of discussion, too, about regulation here and what the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, has been doing, its role in supervising manufacturers like Boeing. Your reporting indicates, with the Max 8 tragedies at least, there was a lot of coziness, a lot of revolving door, a lot of trusting Boeing with regulating itself. Has that changed after 2019? What is the current status of how the FAA is overseeing Boeing? Certainly you're seeing in the public posture uh, from the FAA uh, a much tougher line with with Boeing. The FAA was very quick to say that the the MAX 9 would fly again only when it was satisfied. the uh, the the FAA administrator Mike Whitaker uh, has has said that uh, they're going to have more boots on the ground. They're going to have people inside factories. Um, th- that's that's all well and good, but uh, going back two decades, uh, the FAA has been pushing more and more authority to Boeing, and uh, there, there's also the issue of the under resourcing of the FAA. It it has it, in the case of the Max development, there were a couple dozen FAA engineers who were supposed to be supervising the work of a thousand people at Boeing. Uh, that, that imbalance continues, uh, but, but at least you don't have uh, the open disdain for the FAA, which, which you were hearing that, that came out in the, in the MAX development. There, there was the uh, one employee who said after a meeting with the FAA that it was like dogs watching TV. It was, it was just this openly disdainful attitude from within Boeing. Wow. The FAA, you know, like you said, has more boots on the ground. Uh, There's more scrutiny. There seems to be a tougher line. When it comes to oversight, though, I mean, who is ultimately in charge of ensuring that a plane is assembled correctly? Like, it has to be Boeing's own safety measures, right? Before it goes out the door, this comes down to checklists. This comes down to what their quality control uh, and... Um, their what they listen to when it ter- comes to workers and the speed of the line. I mean, all of this still lies at Boeing's doorstep. Exactly, and that's why the messaging from the top is is so important. And uh, at the same time, we've we've heard that the messaging has been better on safety. Uh, when you talk to workers and and to the unions, they also say that uh, in the years since 2019. There, there was an attempt by Boeing to remove quality control inspections during the process. Boeing says that it, that it held back on that effort and that it's actually increased the number of quality control inspectors by 20 percent. But uh, you, you are hearing some of the same things, that, that uh, the workers still do feel pressured at times. Based on your reporting, based on the reporting of some other folks who cover Boeing, it looks like the cultural shift from the 90s, from the McDonnell Douglas uh, acquisition that emphasized free flow of cash, that emphasized shareholder value, has now come home to roost. And Boeing, since 2018 and 2019, has been trying to course correct, has been trying to have that pendulum shift back towards more of a front foot on safety. What more changes need to happen in your mind to prevent 
more issues. I mean, we have the misdrilled holes that have cropped up on other planes. Um, Luckily, those have been caught. But uh, there's going to be a lot of questions going forward. I mean, what else needs to happen at Boeing to right this ship? The interesting thing is that, yes, Boeing is trying to course correct. It is trying to push the pendulum back in the other direction. But look at the people who are doing that. The the person who is in charge is Dave Calhoun, who has been on Boeing's board since 2009. He was the lead independent director at the time of the Ethiopian air crash. And I've heard from many analysts, Richard Abalafia among them, who says it's very difficult for someone raised in the environment of General Electric, of cash, 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 to, to change their approach. And uh, It'll be very interesting to see if Dave Calhoun can change his approach. If, if you go back to 2016, uh, he was saying in 2016 that governance, he, he said this on an interview with Maria Bartiromo, uh, he said governance is just not helpful. It slows everything down. Corporate governance, as in like oversight from a board? Uh, well, he was talking in terms of, of regulation and uh and, you, and, and until recently, until this accident, uh, Boeing was pushing for a safety exemption on the 737 MAX 7. Uh, and it wasn't until the Senator Tammy Duckworth said, are you serious, essentially, in a meeting with Dave Calhoun that he backed off. But why did it take Tammy Duckworth sitting down and, and kind of giving him a reality check for them to not realize that that safety exempt, exemption in the face of this um, crisis is probably not a great idea to be requesting? I mean, I, that was kind of shocking to me. That, that's exactly why people like Richard Abalafia have questions about whether this is the right management team. So I want to talk about something that's coming up on the horizon, and that's the machinist contract that's up for negotiation this year. Um, these are aerospace workers, and they've been inspired. I mean, there's kind of a resurgence of you know labor sentiment recently. There's been big contract wins from auto workers and some from Hollywood actors and writers. And these machinists are asking for a 40 percent raise. How could this play out here in light of the crisis that Boeing is facing? It does appear that the machinists this time have much more leverage than they did in the last negotiations. In the last negotiations, Boeing had not yet moved uh, as much work uh, to other states, uh, and it had the uh, pending decision about where to produce the 777X uh, in hand, uh, and it was able to threaten to move that work out of state. Uh, it doesn't have that card to play now. Uh, and the other thing that's changed is, as as you said, the overall labor environment, the more inflationary environment. 40% uh, in some places is a going rate. This is what you have to pay. Uh, and so the union will feel very emboldened to push not just for the rate increases, but also guarantees about uh, not moving work to other places and even potentially bringing a pension back. I mean, and you talk about institutional knowledge and losing a lot of that during the pandemic. If you want people to stick around, I think the machinists are going to have a really strong argument about, you know, paying people and <laughs> keeping them happy, right? There there have been a number of studies showing that uh, there, there's a direct correlation between the experience of your manufacturing workforce and your efficiency. And uh, especially coming out of the pandemic and after this accident, Boeing can't afford another one. And uh, it it may that th- actually the same thing happened back in '99. Bo- Boeing had had uh, um, issues with production; it had delays, uh, angry stockholders, and the machinists ended up getting a, exactly the contract they inspected because Boeing expected because Boeing couldn't afford a, a, another problem. 
Yeah. Let's think back in the history of Boeing, as you've covered in your excellent book, Flying Blind, the 737 MAX tragedy and the fall of Boeing. I'm speaking with Peter Robison, an investigative reporter at Bloomberg. In the 1970s, there's the classic uh, billboard that the real estate agents put up. Will the last person to leave Seattle please turn out the lights? And that was because there was this big downturn at Boeing, huge layoffs. The supersonic transport money had dried up. Um, the 747 wasn't getting the kind of you know reaction initially from customers that it needed. And Boeing was on the ropes. How do you compare that time, you know, in the 1970s for Boeing to today's crisis? Is there an existential threat to this company today? I think that the difference is that the threat comes from within at the, at the time mm-hmm. Boeing the calls coming from inside the house yeah, yeah that that Boeing uh, you know as I as I write about in, in my my book that Boeing had executives who were committed to the idea of commercial aircraft they loved the business they wanted it to work uh, it, it was a management that was committed to investing for the future uh, under current Boeing management Dave Calhoun has said that uh, he doesn't expect to develop a new commercial aircraft in the next decade until next decade. And uh, when he made that announcement in November 22, that was really a gift to Airbus. Airbus ended up selling more than a thousand of its A321neo after that point. And uh, Boeing has to decide if it wants to be in the commercial aircraft business. Can a company survive if it's not constantly developing the next thing? That's a real question. That's a live question that uh, at, at the Pacific Northwest Aerospace Alliance conference last week. Uh, Up in Linwood, In, in right? Linwood, that, yeah. that uh, uh, Ron Epstein from Bank of America was arguing that uh, it, it, it's critical you know, to maintain your morale, to maintain your engineering workforce, that uh, you have too many uh, opportunities for talented people to go elsewhere. A lot of people come into this industry because... They love the product. They love developing uh, great aerospace products. So if, if, if you, you may find your talented people going to Blue Origin or SpaceX. Hmm. I mean, could Boeing survive in the future down the line? I mean, and there's a lot of orders still to be filled. There's a lot of customers. It's a duopoly, right? It's not a monopoly uh, yet. Uh, Airbus has... Um, a big share of the business and growing. Boeing um, has a big share of the business, but, you know, shrinking compared to Airbus. Um, Is there a future in which Boeing does move away from commercial airlines and is more just, what, a military and space contractor? You could potentially see that happening. There, there's always speculation uh, that that Boeing may sell off one side. It, it, uh, Moved to Arlington, Virginia, which uh, is you know potentially showing that the government contracting side is extremely important. Yeah, if you want to sell things to the military, that's a good place to be. Yeah, you you do have the question of who would buy it, and and at its current market cap, it would be more than a hundred billion, and people probably don't have that kind of cash. So so what what's more likely is that. Boeing continues as number two. It, it is a duopoly. It is a very long cycle business. There, there is a uh, aircraft maker in China uh, which doubled deliveries last year, but that was from one to two. So that's a very long term competitor. Uh, so uh, what what you're seeing is 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 stagnation right now. Mm. Well, it's just fascinating stuff. Peter Robison has been covering Boeing since the '90s and has the definitive book on 
the 737 MAX 8 tragedies, Flying Blind, the 737 MAX tragedy and the fall of Boeing is that book. Um, Anything else you want to add, Peter, that we haven't talked about or that you think people should take away from what's happening at Boeing and its future? I mean, when you talk about the idea of Boeing moving away from commercial airlines, you know, this is a company... When it makes a sale, it changes the trade balance of the United States. I mean, this is one of the most consequential companies, U.S. companies that exists. Um, And I think it's really a a very important time to be looking closely about its at its future. Um, Anything else you want to add? It, it is a company that's extremely important to the trade balance. It's extremely important to the workforce he, here. It, it's really a company that helped create the middle class here. And uh, it, it's a company that did that through investment and uh, thinking long term. And, and one only hopes that that continues. I always disclose every time I talk about Boeing that my dad worked for Boeing for almost 40 years. When you talk about developing the middle class, you know, I benefited from that. And my, uh, you know, privilege is is a lot in due to um, what Boeing provided to its workforce. So, yeah, I nobody knows more than, you know, folks around here how important this company is. And um, I think there's a lot of folks listening very closely to and watching closely what's what's going to happen to it. Peter Robison, an investigative journalist at Bloomberg. Check out his book, Flying Blind, The 737 MAX Tragedy and the Fall of Boeing. Thank you so much for being here, Peter. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to SoundSide. By the way, this show is only possible because listeners support us. If you are able to give right now, check out the show notes for a link to donate. And don't forget, you can listen live on KUOW 94.9 FM Seattle at noon and 8 p.m. Monday through Thursday or anytime online at KUOW.org. Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. A story of moral panic, grassroots activism, and an unstoppable music community that fought for its freedom. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network.